request. My name is Alan Mulhan. Having looked at the benevolent and terrible aspects of the Great Mother and located this duality in the history of our consciousness, I now wish to explore the transition from the Great Mother to the Patriarchy, again understood symbolically and mythologically. Three to six thousand years ago, patriarchal religions replaced mother worship. The masculine became opposed to nature, the realm of the feminine, mythologically portrayed in the dragon fight. This is a fundamental shift in human consciousness and prerequisite to the advancement of patriarchal civilization. The story of Homo sapiens so far presented is that of an emergent consciousness founded upon a vast heritage, now the unconscious of our species. The Great Mother, in her beneficent and terrible aspects, was central to our prehistory, and therefore, like a mother with child in womb or at breast, is the mythological foundation of both our evolving consciousness and the archaic roots of our unconscious. Contemporary humanity has a consciousness centred in the ego plus an unconscious, which is more than the id of sexual and aggressive forces, but a vast inner world, quite different from that of our consciousness, and has its own purpose, meaning and vibrant luminosity. It is immersed in fertility and power, and founded on an archetypal, transpersonal, awesome realm with its own beauty and emotional narrative. So, also in the history of the evolving consciousness of our species, there is a duality. The patriarchal civilizations arose by repressing the matriarchal feminine. For example, the god of the Jews forbade the worship of the cow fertility. The consciousness of modern humanity is built on this repression. The great religions and patriarchal civilizations suppressed attachments to the gods of nature, the great mother, and the worship of fertility and sexuality. Civilization requiring order, control, and an individualized moralistic consciousness was built on this repression. It is customary to tell the history of mankind including that of the emergence of civilization, with reference to the objects or productions of consciousness, that is, the developments in technology, the emergence of writing, the creation of surplus, new class structures, trading relationships, and so forth. Of course, these are of great importance, and as well as being creations of consciousness, they also profoundly influence it. However, here is a different narrative that expresses itself mythologically, which is the way consciousness tells a story of its own origins and development. While objectivity of self-examination is scarcely possible, this is not so with regard to subjective expressions of consciousness. And this, we suggest, is what the histories of art, music, literature, religion, folklore, fairy tales, alchemy, etc., are largely concerned with. In these, consciousness expresses its own experience 
and even reflects on itself via a multitude of symbolic forms. Symbols are the vehicles of consciousness, so it can articulate its own experience in nature. Consciousness has to examine itself through symbols which require interpretation. It tells stories which become ever deeper reflections on its own self. Mankind's eyes open with the birth of the ego, a separate self, a distinct discriminating consciousness, to observe that which is outside. But this world is also a construction of our own consciousness, which is ultimately enmeshed in it. Fully aware consciousness is the flower of evolution, a capacity of creation to evolve an intelligence to reflect back on itself. Homo sapiens, despite an extraordinary development of consciousness, forever struggles with an animal inheritance. One of the decisive changes in our cultural evolution is the transition from religions and mythologies where the Great Mother played an important role to a new stage of patriarchal religions, a new dominant in consciousness. The worship of the Great Mother was essentially that of the mysteries of nature, of which our animal inheritance was central. The sky gods of the patriarchy, representing the birth of a transcendent, individualistic and moralistic consciousness, tried to control both our own animal instincts and these religions opposed the immersion of consciousness within nature. There are numerous myths concerning the struggle of this transition to a different stage of consciousness from the world of nature to civilization. The most common being heroic battles against ferocious animals, the archetype of which is the dragon. While the individual significance of this may be obvious, most of us have to struggle with our animal nature, it has also collective meaning in the history of our species. The dragon, above all, symbolises the Great Mother herself. From the viewpoint of the emerging individualised consciousness, the danger is of being devoured by the unconscious, which now becomes negatively imagined as the dragon. The great treasure of the developing self, individualised and higher consciousness, cannot be released until the dragon is killed. Consciousness is in conflict with its own foundations. Wagner, in part three of the Ring of the Nibelung, dramatically represents Siegfried's conquest of the dragon, who holds the treasure, after which he ascends the mountain and crosses the wall of flame to encounter Brunhilde. Wagner understood only too well the eternally fascinating power of archetypes and myths. The bullfight is also a symbol of this theme of man versus nature. The bull has always been recognised as a tremendous force of nature. The history of a sacred, sacrificial relationship to this animal has been part of human history from our very beginnings, since it clearly represents mankind's relationship to our own instinctual nature and can be illustrated in three stages that shade into one another, overlap and sometimes conflict. These stages in relationship to the bull, 
which is a symbol of our animal nature, are those of worship, prohibition and battle. Let's look at each in turn. Worship of the bull. The images on the walls of the Paleolithic caves, that is from 40,000 years ago onwards, show many bulls as well as cows, which were clearly an object of fascination for early mankind, embodiments of fertility and power. In ancient Egypt, the worship of the bull, Apis, was one of the longest traditions of animal worship, stretching back thousands of years to early Egyptian civilization. Individual real-life bulls were worshipped as deities and believed to be incarnations of Osiris. Ancient Egypt represents a decisive movement to the patriarchy, yet many of its religious practices and beliefs were transmitted from tribal customs that went back into time immemorial. Ancient Egypt was thus a mixture of opposites between the Great Mother and patriarchal gods, between worship of the forces and creatures of the earth on the one hand and sun worship on the other. Not surprising given the longevity of its civilization. Bull worship, the embodiment of the god infertility and power, was a central element of this transmission. In Egypt, we record also the first signs of bull sacrifice. From Egypt, bull worship and sacrifice spread around the Mediterranean, which was not difficult since the fascination and awe of this force of nature are universal. For example, in Minoan Crete, popularly associated with goddess worship, the frescoes of the palaces were adorned with sporting youths, male and female, leaping over the horns of bulls. It's not difficult to imagine the power and fertility rites associated with these acrobatics, these leaps over death into life. The frescoes depict a leaping, not a fighting ritual, not an effort to conquer and kill, but to partake in a fertility ritual in which life and death forces are closely linked. This is far closer to bull worship. Here we have a civilization, the Minoan, Cretan, much closer to the world of nature than, say, the Hebrews and the Greeks, who show a decisive transition, a movement away from mankind's immersion in nature and its implied dominance of the Great Mother. The sacrificing of bulls to the gods existed in these times, but this sacrifice was precisely because these animals were of such importance. Next stage, prohibition of bull worship. As the patriarchal Abrahamic religions developed, the immersion in nature and its mysteries was prohibited, clearly documented in the Old Testament, for example the book of Leviticus. The Judaic religion developed out of and then in opposition to the nature religions that surrounded them. The goddess worship that was common among the Canaanites, bordering the Jewish tribes, this goddess worship was forbidden to the Jews and there was always a danger of them falling back into the sexuality, licentiousness and promiscuity they perceived in such religions, represented 
by worship of fertility symbols, of which the bull or the cow were prime examples. When Moses went up to the mount to receive the tablets of stone with the law written upon them, Exodus chapters 32 and 33, the Jews below returned to the worship of the golden calf. Upon his return, Moses organised the slaughter of 3,000 people in punishment for this betrayal of Yahweh. The Abrahamic religions subsequently set themselves against the worship of the Great Mother and saw this battle against her as one that defined their civilizations. As you are no doubt aware, Yahweh has no female consort. Thirdly, the battle against nature and the bull. There are many myths concerning the battle against monsters and animals by the emerging heroes of patriarchal civilization. The battle against the dragon is of course famous, but those against the bull exist also from the start of these civilizations and are still with us today. They encapsulate a story in mythic form of the transition from one stage of consciousness to another, from one type of civilization to another. For example, in Greek mythology, the legend of the Minotaur tells a tale of this transition. The Mediterranean island of Crete was the centre of Minoan civilization, situated geographically and culturally between Egypt and Greece. It had long traditions of worship of female snake goddesses, as well as the bull-jumping events just referred to. We may think of it as transitional between the Great Mother and the patriarchal gods. Minos was a famous king of Crete, Pasiphae his wife. Legend has it that Pasiphae fell into a passion with a beautiful white bull and persuaded Daedalus, the master craftsman, to construct a likeness of a cow into which she entered so as to copulate with the bull. The offspring of this union was the Minotaur, half bull, half man. Minos, the king, on advice from the oracle Adelphi, had Daedalus construct a labyrinth in which the Minotaur was incarcerated at the centre. Parallel to these events, King Minos, as the most powerful king of the Mediterranean, demanded as tribute from Athens seven of their sons and daughters to be sent at intervals as sacrifice to the Minotaur. On the third occasion, Theseus, in the mould of the hero, was one of the group to be sacrificed, but he vowed to kill the Minotaur. On arrival in Crete, Minos's daughter, Ariadne, fell in love with him and armed him with a sword for this task. She also gave him the famous thread by which to find his way out of the labyrinth. Theseus, with this help, slew the Minotaur and led his companions to freedom. The legend, for our purposes, illustrates the shift from the world of nature immersion to that of reason and the higher spirit embodied in Greece, a movement to patriarchal consciousness. The Minoan culture of Crete is balanced between the old world of mother worship and the new patriarchal civilizations such as Greece. The old world is connected to Egypt 
and from there back into time immemorial to Africa, where mankind was identified with the world of nature. The Minoan goddesses, holding the snakes of instinct and rebirth, represent a world quite different from the emerging rationalisms, scientific speculation and higher philosophies of Greece, the emerging paradigm of rational consciousness. The prelude to the Minotaur story is then of a conflict between Minos and his wife. She threatened his masculine rule with her union with the bull, symbol of fertility, sexuality and power, the essence of the old world. Minos's requirement that the Athenians sacrifice their sons and daughters to the half-bull of Crete is a demand for sacrifice and submission of the Greek world to the old world of nature worship. Minos himself, like Minoan civilization, is also clearly in a halfway position between two worlds. Theseus, like other Greek heroes, gained freedom for himself and his community by liberation from the Great Mother, the world of nature, by slaying the half-bull, half-man. The myth of the labyrinth and the minotaur, one of the most famous and long-lasting of the amazing Greek pantheon of legends and archetypes, is replete with symbols which represent a movement of human consciousness from one stage to another. Minos and his wife represent a struggle between the power of the patriarchy and that of the Great Mother. Parsifay does not bend to Minos's rule, but follows and schemes for her sexual passion and freedom. Minos, who is halfway between these two positions of the patriarchy and the Great Mother, seeks advice from the Delphic Oracle, situated in Greece, and therefore representing the emerging patriarchal spirit which recommends incarceration of the offspring, half-bull and half-man. The bull is a symbol of our animal nature and therefore belongs to the Great Mother. The labyrinth is human consciousness, at the centre of which is our animal nature, imprisoned by our reason. Remember, it was Daedalus, the master craftsman, who constructed the labyrinth. The sacrifice of the Athenian youth is the submission of the rising Greek masculine and patriarchal spirit to the ancient ways of the Great Mother. Theseus is the emerging solar hero. Ariadne, falling in love with him, represents a submission of the old world to the emerging new. After leaving the labyrinth, Theseus abandons her, by the way. Theseus kills the Minotaur, which, like so many Greek myths, involving the killing of wild animals, represents the slaughter of the Great Mother and the triumph of the rising patriarchy, and so on. This myth is dense, compact and overdetermined with symbols all pointing in one direction, the emergence through violent struggle of a new stage of human consciousness. As already mentioned, myths are the way in which consciousness tells the story of itself. The violence of the struggle against our animal nature and the desire to conquer it is shown in these myths and legends. This theme continues 
within Roman civilization, which followed the Greek. Arthur Toynbee, in his study of history, suggests that if an observer of the 3rd century Roman Empire were to hazard a guess as to the future dominant religion, the bets would have been on Mithraism. With many hundreds of centres of worship in Rome, very popular throughout the Roman Empire, and widely followed in the Roman legions. The central motif of this religion found in its places of worship was the killing of a bull. Stemming originally from Persian origins, the Roman versions show Mithras looking over his shoulder at Sol, the sun god, and killing an exhausted bull who has been tortured by other wild animals. Although the Mithraic cult is shrouded in mystery, it fits well into our theme. The emerging patriarchal civilizations and religions violently oppose those of the Great Mother. Her symbols from the animal kingdom, be they dragon, snake, lion or bull, are killed in these emerging patriarchal mythologies. The new solar gods of light and higher consciousness fight a battle to destroy the Great Mother and her worship. The world of nature, as it emerges instinctively within the psyche of mankind, is violently attacked. Solar mythology, achievement, individuality, higher consciousness, discipline, conquest, male values, higher reason and the light, replaces the female and lunar, cyclical rebirth, world of nature, the collective, instincts and reproduction. The history of human consciousness, considered as an inner phenomena, is a creative destructive evolution and is clearly violent. For those who find such speculation far-fetched, consider the bullfight which exists in Spain to this day. Where did it come from, if not from these mythologies that were powerfully focused in the Mediterranean? Why such elaborate ritual and drama in these bull killings? Does not this fight between man and bull represent an ancient ritual that has survived into modern times? Could it be the survival of a Mithraic mystery rite in a gladiatorial setting? The anthropologist Julian Pitt Rivers in 1954 suggested the bullfight is a Christian cult of the bull. Quote, that the Spanish bullfight recalls the Mithraic bull sacrifice, though under the aspect of Catholicism. Unquote. The torero, the bullfighter, represents the solar hero, higher intelligence and skill, while the bull is the powerful and threatening world of nature that has to be mastered and slain. This is a fight of man against his lower instincts. In mythological terms, it is the defeat of the Great Mother by the emerging solar civilizations of higher consciousness. The freeing of our ego consciousness from the grip of the dragon of the unconscious is only part of the drama. This battle is also the freeing of the higher self from the suffocating grip of nature. The hero, the individual consciousness about to fight the dragon, is the son of the creative spirit belonging to the sky gods, 
and this spirit must be liberated from its entrapment in nature. Thus we have a battle concerning the spiritual aspects of consciousness. Spirit had previously been embodied in nature and the Great Mother, but is now to be, quote, rescued, unquote, and freed from the dragon's embrace. Thus the hero embodies the emergence of a higher form of consciousness or a higher personality. The treasure, or the maiden, which the dragon guards, is to be released, but controlled by the conquest of this monster. However, there is a cost to this transition. While consciousness feels a sense of freedom, released from the confines of the unconscious, there is a price it pays for the separation from nature. Thus, Perseus kills the Gorgon, but is haunted by the Furies. Oedipus slays his father and is blinded. Siegfried, in Nordic mythology, destroys the dragon, frees the treasure and gains Brunhilde only to be tricked and destroyed by his own dark nature and sexual impulses. It is impossible to do violence to our own nature, slay the dragon, kill the monster, without paying a price, such as guilt, sorrow, loss, alienation and division within ourselves. Moreover, if the dragon represents our own inner nature, then it follows it cannot be destroyed but only repressed. And as Freud poignantly noted, the repressed has a habit of returning. While Homo sapiens evolved more than 200,000 years ago in East Africa, it was not until around 50,000 years ago that sufficient artefacts were preserved to give us no doubt as to the emergence of humanity. The astounding cave paintings of France and Spain, but also other parts of the world, illustrate that from 40,000 years ago, Homo sapiens possessed a higher self and awareness, an aesthetic and most probably spiritual sensibility. From this period we have the first preserved musical instruments, flutes made of bird bone and mammoth tusk, some exquisitely made, as well as more sophisticated weaponry and tools. Great mother worship existed, we suspect, in Europe since over 20,000 years ago, where there were, and some still preserved, wonderful figurines of female reproductive power, surely the emergence of the mother goddess. From around 12,000 years ago, the Neolithic agricultural revolution understood the secret of crop production. There existed from this time a mixture of great mother worship and male gods, eventually crystallising in patriarchal religions and civilizations, which emerged from, say, six to 7,000 years ago in Egypt, China and India, and later in Greece and Rome. There were, then, pulses of patriarchal religions and societies, at first coexisting with great mother worship, at times cohabiting and then replacing and dominating the great mother nature spirit. The establishment of civilization, especially in its patriarchal form, was then a decisive movement and development of human consciousness. The attitude of this evolving consciousness to its own self, especially to its platform of creatureliness or animality, 
is played out in mythology and some of its forms are the relationship of humans to animals and of man to woman, behind which is the relationship to nature. Concerning this distinction between two types of consciousness, that of patriarchal civilization and that of one more immersed in nature, an illustrative analogy is the model of Melanie Klein of the stages of psychological development of the infant. As already mentioned in previous podcasts, she characterised the earliest stage of infant development as paranoid schizoid, in which the opposites of the good and the bad breast dominate the psyche, which is split between polar experiences of benevolence and frustration in relationship to the mother, upon whom the child is totally dependent. The child has little or no ego to defend itself against dark feelings of anger and envy. It is also capable of being overjoyed by the love of the mother. This stage is called paranoid schizoid because in Klein's view, both paranoid and schizoid features dominate the early psyche. Paranoid, that is, intensely fearful and suspicious, and schizoid, that is, being split by opposites. Participation mystique, the enwrapment in nature, is not just the experience of bliss, any more than a child experiences solely happiness with the mother. Participation mystique is a non-egoic state in which the opposites of the human psyche are experienced with tremendous intensity, one in which the psyche moves its centre from one pole to the opposite dramatically and quickly, a borderline phenomenon. The stabilising force of the ego, which reasons with the psyche, calming its fears and warning of its excessive emotions, is not strong in the early psyche. Thus, brutality and savagery could easily exist in the same person, along with love or tenderness. The opposites are not experienced as a problem because there is little reflecting ego to be agonised by them. There is the experiencing as opposed to the reflective subject. As the new, more individualised and higher consciousness liberates itself from the world of nature, from the enmeshment in the Great Mother, as there is a shift to patriarchal consciousness, to sky gods, principles, spirit, and even to ideas of one transcendent God, there is a sense of elation and power. Man rejoices in a new freedom of mind and feels a solar status, a universality and immortality soaring above the earth to the heavens, no longer grounded by instinct and traditions of the group, but destined to produce order and civilization. The firmly established consciousness begins to rejoice in its power and individuality. It now has a more distinct and robust ego. It also has a higher self while it attempts to control its lower animal nature. Yet no sooner have patriarchal religions gained ascendancy than the awareness of an enormous loss becomes evident. Notions of evil and sin also become common. Consciousness expresses these feelings mythologically. The new creation myths, the narratives that shape the consciousness of the patriarchy, 
express these conflicts in great myths of creation, how evil came into the world, the fall of mankind, the place of man and woman in God's creation, their responsibilities and the dangers they face. Above all, the new mythologies show the emergence of consciousness out of nature, which on the one hand is experienced as necessary development and liberating, and on the other is a form of self-damage. The hero struggles with his fate. He rises with the sun. He cannot rest until he's freed and awesome deeds are done. The hero comes from other worlds. His arrows are sharp feathered to kill the mother of all life and from himself be severed. <laughs>